listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. Yesterday, I watched a 2014 documentary of my guest's band. He's was a founder of Twisted Sister, and I gotta tell you this. If you're a musician, or an actor, or a writer, or a small business owner, or a salesman, you gotta watch this documentary, because it shows the dedication and hard work it takes to get global domination, which Twisted Sister did. And he also has a new book coming out in September. He's the host of the podcast, The French Connection. And my guest is J.J. French. How you doing, J.J.? Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for that nice introduction. <clears throat> I, I, I watched, it's funny, I, put the, I watched a documentary, and it's called We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. So I sit there, I talk into my remote, and I go, Twisted Sister. And it shows me some... TV show, and it shows Snap, and I go, okay, and I go into the remote, we are fucking Twisted Sister, and it says, we do not <laughs> acknowledge language like that, so finally, I'm like, we are Twisted Sister, and I found it, and first of all, what made you decide to want to do a documentary? Was it because you knew that it could give a lot of inspiration to people? Uh, actually, the impetus of the documentary was uh, really interesting. I was a guest on another documentary and the documentary had to do with a uh, German rock opera singer named Klaus Nomi who never really made it uh, outside of certain urban areas in in the world, uh, gay areas he was kind of a gay icon uh, and he kind of succeeded in New York City, he showed up in the early 80s in New York with the express, from Germany with the express goal of uh, singing with David Bowie. And he actually did on Saturday Night Live. He actually was a backup singer dressed as a spaceman because his whole shtick was the spaceman thing. Anyway, Klaus Nomi became somewhat of a legend in the gay underworld pop world of Germany and a German, an American-born a uh, German filmmaker named Andy Horn was doing a documentary on Klaus Nomi. And in this documentary on Klaus Nomi, someone told him, you should talk to guys in Twisted Sister about the time Klaus Nomi opened for Twisted Sister because that show really fucked him up and changed his whole life. And in fact, that show did fuck up Klaus Nomi. Klaus Nomi performed for an audience of our fans and they booed him off the stage and it, it absolutely traumatized him and he stopped basically playing live after that experience our fans were not kind so the the guy comes to my house to interview me about that night and um i remember that night very well i remember meeting klaus in the dressing room getting dressed up to be twisted sister except for us it's shtick you know it's a for us it's thing for klaus he was in the he was like in some sort of a method acting thing like he is klaus nomi he is a german spaceman opera singer from Mars. And he wasn't coming out of the shtick, you know, and I went in the dressing room like, hey, how you doing? Good luck tonight. I don't know what the shtick is. I don't know what, what he does. But our fans were heavy metal fans who would only tolerate a heavy metal band putting something on, not a, opera, not a German gay opera singer, okay? That wasn't going to happen. And uh, I thought to myself, who the fuck put this guy on the bill? He's going to get destroyed. I mean, look, the club that he did this at was like five miles from the George Washington Bridge, which is seven miles from CBGB's, but it may as well have been fucking South Africa. I mean, it may have just been another continent. So Klaus Noni goes on stage and does his German opera gay shtick, and he's booed off the stage in minutes, and it basically freaked him out. So, so this filmmaker is saying to me, what was it like that night? And, I'm, and so I look at this guy and I say to him, where are you from? He goes, I'm from New York City. I said, oh. I said, what do you know about Twisted Sister? He goes, well, I know you guys are very famous. I don't know much about the band. And after my segment with him about Klaus Nomi, I sat him down in my living room for three hours and told him our story. And he looked at me and he said, you have just given me my next documentary. And it took him eight years put the documentary together so that's really what happened now the facets of the documentary the story and all of the accompanying videos were always maintained by me because i knew that i was onto something at an early age 
and that I should keep all this stuff. So I kept diaries and memorabilia and tons of videos and photos. So when he asked me for stuff, I was able to uh, provide it and took him eight years to to do it. Now, the one thing I got from that video is, you know, you have a, a insane work ethic. Where did that come from? Did, is that driven into you as a kid or is that something you developed? Because I know for me, my parents always said go out and work. So you're shoveling sidewalks or you're delivering the papers or you're doing all the, you know, mowing the lawn. And you, you did it because your parents told you to do it. Where did your work ethic come from? Oh, man. Did you ever interview Shep Gordon or I, Doc McGee? No, I've, I've seen Shep's uh, documentary. Okay. So I just interviewed Shep and Doc. And both of them started out as drug dealers. And I was a drug dealer. And I was a drug dealer out of necessity because my parents had no money, so I couldn't buy guitars and shit. And so uh, living in New York City in the 60s, it was easy to sell weed and make a lot of money really quick. And, uh, you know, my father was a jewelry salesman, so there's a part of me that's a salesman. And, um, and I needed money, so someone said, yeah, man, you can buy an ounce of weed for $15. You know, this is back in the 60s, so I bought an ounce for 15 and said, you can have seven nickel bags, you know. So I made seven nickel bags, and, and within a day, I had 35 bucks. So I said, well, I got $35. I said, well, buy, a, a two, you know, buy two ounces, which I did. And then I turned that into 70 and then he said, well, you can buy a pound. Back in those days, a pound was um, $90. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to make this sound like when I was a kid, gasoline was $4 a gallon, and you had to walk to school for five miles. There was no electricity. But, you know, in those days, weed was 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 $90 a pound and 150 a kilo, you know. And so I started making money by the ton and, uh, and, and, and uh, started buying guitars and amps and really getting into the flow of dealing and in business. And then I wound up like building up my enterprise bigger and bigger and bigger, but I didn't want to become like Superfly. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to make money to buy guitars and amps and go to rock shows. You know, that was the goal. Back in those days, the rock shows were $3 or a dollar to see everybody. Hendrix still, you know, it didn't matter. Everyone was, the, the most expensive show was the Rolling Stones with $6 at the Garden. Everything else was a buck. Was a dollar at Central Park or $3 at the Fillmore? So you can see Hendrix Zeppelin, Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, didn't matter. It was a dollar or three dollars. So I was every week seeing shows. Every, and then finally I went to Europe. I was dealing in Europe. And everything was going great for five years. Dealing, getting high, uh, involved in all sorts of crazy shit. And um, I had to make a decision one day. And the decision was, am I going to continue this life or am I going to stop and dedicate myself to rock and roll? Like I'm really going to do something with my guitar playing talent. And uh, my girlfriend and my best friend became heroin addicts and heroin destroyed the scene I was in in New York. And just as I was about to engulf me and destroy my life, I pulled myself out of it, woke up one day and said, you know what? Five years, it's been crazy. Fuck it. It's done. It's over. And I quit everything, dealing, doing drugs, everything. And now I'm totally straight. And now I want to be in a rock band. And it's 1972, Bowie, Mott, Lou Reed, overwhelmed me and I said that's what I want to be I don't want to be a Grateful Dead Alban Brothers hippie I want to be a glam guy so I cut my hair off and dyed it blonde and um, wound up joining Twisted Sisters the last original member so this is what most drug dealers do they become members of a transvestite that's how I morphed I morphed from a drug dealing hippie a drug dealing drug addict hippie into a completely straight non-druggy transvestite rock musician and a rock man and that's kind of how that happened. But I was just the guitar player, nothing more than the guitar player. Quickly, I learned the business by looking around and seeing how it was all going down. And um, I started not trusting anybody but my own instincts. And my own instincts eventually were organizational. And I took over over many, many years. That's kind of what happened. So if you would have asked my teachers so tell me about John Segal, my real name. Does he have any organizational skills whatsoever? Fuck no. Does he have any responsible skills whatsoever? Fuck no. Was he academically inclined whatsoever? Fuck no. Well, he's turned into a pretty successful business guy. Do you have any idea? That's impossible. It can't be the guy I knew. So strange shit happens. I don't, you know, I, I can't pinpoint how and when 
the overwhelming desire to be responsible and business-like kind of came over me. It just evolved over time. Well, you know, what was amazing, I was, I was listening to the documentary, is how the, the record industry, you know, how you guys were so persistent. And it showed, you know, I mean, you know, you, you deal with business people, you see business people, and everyone talks about entrepreneurs. You were a, a truly an entrepreneur. I mean, just from every aspect. But when, when this was all happening, did you sit there and think, I'm an entrepreneur? Because, you know, back then no one said we're entrepreneurs. Now it's like they're solo patrols. There's all this, so much bullshit terms. But when, what was... What did you think was just going on when you were starting? I mean, did you always have the huge picture? Because you guys are making great money being a cover band. You know, back then, you know, in that scene, I mean, did you always have an ultimate long-run picture in your head? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, in my book, which will be coming out soon, and which my, and my book will be the world's first bizwar, which is a business book and a memoir. I coined that phrase as a marketer. So it's the world's first bizwar. Um while it was happening, at the time it was happening, I didn't know it was happening. I just reacted to the forces that were I was confronted with. And my response to each one of those challenges was to overcome them. And I developed these theories, which I didn't even know I had until about five years ago, in which I, a little more, longer than that, I met a professional motivational speaker and author and we had a long talk about my life, and and all, and I had diaries for many, many, many years, which I needed as a tool to help me get through really tough times. But the point is, is that he said to me, "Organize your thoughts about why you succeeded and how it happened, you know, why you persisted." And so, reading my diaries that I kept from 1974 to to, to 1989, um, I started seeing a consistent pattern. And the pattern was essentially that the business, if, if you look at rock as a business, forget that it's rock and roll. Rock and roll is sexy. Forget the sexy part. Just, just look at it as a business, whether it's a shoe business, whether it's a, whether it's a, a financial institution, um, or whatever it is. Business is business is business is business. So the same rules apply no matter what. And the same rules of success apply no matter what. So I was basically applying rules of success that I didn't even know. And you know that where the when you said to me entrepreneur, you know, like did I know I was an entrepreneur? I didn't know that entrepreneur was a goal. Um, I thought you became an I thought you were entrepreneurial in spirit, but I didn't know that to say I'm an entrepreneur became a thing. You know, like what do you do for a living? I th I didn't think that being an entrepreneur was the job description. I thought it was the end result of whatever you were pursuing. I never knew it until Twisted Sister played a show in Waukesha, Wisconsin, several years ago. And um, and there was a woman walking around. This was about seven, eight years ago. There was a woman walking around with a crown. She was crowned Miss the Fairest of the Fair because she won some sort of beauty contest at some state fair at Waukesha, Wisconsin. So I'm talking to her, and I said, so what do you want to – I said, wow, congratulations. You got a crown on your head, you know. And so what, do you, what, what is your aspiration? She goes, I want to be an entrepreneur. She said, and I went, you want to be an entrepreneur? I, I, entrepreneur of what? I want to be an entrepreneur. Of what? I couldn't get beyond the of what. So she hasn't found out her goal. Well, entrepreneurial um, instincts are what you need. So I never knew I was an entrepreneur. I was following my instincts to become successful. That's what the documentary showed. And I needed partners to do it with. You don't do it by yourself. I had incredible partners. Now, the thing is, you know, in the early days, you know, you went through some different lineup changes. And it's funny because I, I, I had uh, recently a band is playing. I live in New Jersey and there's a band playing in uh, Vineland. And they say the moniker of the band. But I looked and I've had one of the original numbers on my show and I might have another but none of the original members are in it. That always cracks me up. Like, you guys, at least, if you see Twisted Sisters playing, you know what's going to be Twisted Sister. I mean, as someone who's been in a band for such a long time, does that bother you when you see a band and people go to see it? Because I know you guys were all about the hard, kick-ass live performances. You gave it all. Does that bother you as, an entre as, a, as a musician when you see a band that has, like, 
None of the original members, but yet they have still the same name. Well, if you're talking about like a band like Foreigner that has no original members in it, okay? None at this point. And if you say to me, what do I feel about it? The answer to that question is simple. If the public buys it, who cares what I have to say about it? The public buys it. If a public goes and buys a band with one, one original member and they're buying it, at the end of the day, they're buying it. So I don't know if my proclamation of whether it's a fraud or they're perpetrating on the public is valid. It's not valid. You got to do what you got to do. Look, the Twisted Sister that made it was the 14th version of the band. So uh, at any given point along that road, when a fan locked themselves into Twisted Sister and then we switched band members, any one of those fans could have said it's not the original band. Any one of them could. You know, we would lose band members and we would have people come to shows going, you kicked out Tony, you suck. You're never going to make that. You kicked out Joey, you suck. You're gonna The original guys in the band, they'd come to me and they'd go, you know, you suck. Okay. So I kept going on and eventually the band that made it, made it. And uh, tough, right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. So um, you can't make people, you can't make everybody happy. I don't want to pass judgment. You know, I don't pass judgment on Kiss because there's two guys. I, it's, you know how hard this business is? It's fucking hard, man. If you figure out a way to keep it going and people are spending money on you, then God bless you for that. You know, it's not for me to pass judgment on. I really know. I'm not trying to cop out on it. I'm just not. It's just that who cares what I think. I mean, who really gives a fuck what I think? Any more than I should give a fuck if somebody else thinks about what I did, which is I don't have time to be worried about it. I don't have time to whether whether you not whether you like the fact that this drummer is gone or that drummer is gone. Guess what? That drummer didn't work out. He was an idiot. That band didn't work out. They were fucking with my life. They were preventing me from succeeding. So I don't really care. Nice that you hooked up with the band at that point in time, but who cares? I have to move on. How did you know when it was time to get rid of a member? I mean, I know the original members, there's a lot of drinking, but is there something where that you actually liked a member, but you said he's just not right for the equation? And how do you act like that? I mean, it, it is business, and you forget that. But some of these people, I'm sure you get a kinship with because you're playing with them, and you guys performed all the time. How would you deal with something like that? Remember in The Godfather, when Michael turns to Sonny, he goes, Sonny, it's not personal. It's business. And that's what it is. It's not personal, Sonny. It's business. So my wife thinks I'm really, like, there's a part of me that's really cold. Like, when it's time to be over, it's over. And you move on. And I can't say that she's wrong. But um, if you want to survive in business, you got to move. You have to change. I mean, you have to, you have to adapt. So when a band member... Yeah, I think you give a band member, look, changing band members is a drag to do. Like changing a business, being involved in business and changing people is tough, especially if you're the one that's the catalyst of it. It's tough emotionally. You wish you didn't have to do it. You give somebody all the chances in the world. We gave band members chances all the time. And then comes a point where they go, you know what? It's now undeniable. You fucked up and you're out of here. Now, every time that happened, um, we never left ourselves open to get hurt by another band member. So we, we would rehearse a replacement in secret and have the replacement ready and then give the band member like a, a month. Like we wouldn't say, we wouldn't say to them, um, we're firing you in a month. Cause I, then having to look at the puppy dog eyes for that month would suck. You know, <laughs> do I really have to go? My mother's sick. My girlfriend's having a baby. I, I don't want to deal with that stuff. You know? So what we'd say is, you know, in lieu of, of uh, 30 days, we're giving, give you 30 days pay, you know, just that tonight's the last night <laughs> and that's the end of it. And Wednesday I'm debuting the next guy. And we do that over and over and over again. Now, again, um, you need partners that are committed to this. So D committed, right? Eddie, committed mark committed it's not like they argued with me or i argued with them you know the core of the band me d and eddie have been together since 1976 let's talk about that okay that's that core 
Mark comes in in 78. Once that core was established, that core was hardcore. That hard that that core was devoted to succeed. And if we didn't see that mirrored in the new, new drummer, gone. And we all realized it too. We all look at each other and go, it's, still, it's over. It's just done. Gone. 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 Over and over and over again. So, yeah, you know, because you, it's hard enough to be successful in a business without having to deal with the internal crap from your partners. So, that's what happened. Now, how did D end up being in the band? I know you originally were the singer. And, I mean, down the no, road. No, 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 no. I was, no, no. The, no. the original singer, Michael was replaced by another singer named Rick who was then replaced by me. Right. Cause I got sick of dealing with singers. <laughs> you know, I just went, Oh fuck, I'll just take over that way. I have to fucking deal with these maniacs. But then my voice was terrible and I know I recognized it, you know, I mean, God created Dylan so I could do cover material. I mean, you know, like I just, you know how you fuck up a Lou Reed song, sing it on key. Right. That's how you fuck up a Lou Reed song. <laughs> That's how you know someone really fucked up a Lou Reed song. He's singing on key, man. Oh, so um, I, and at the time, uh, my agent said, "If you guys don't do Zeppelin covers, if you want to make big money in the bars, you need to do Zepp covers." So it's 1976, and D was known as someone who can sing Zepp great, really well. Uh, he was hired for that. I didn't know, you know. I think I said to him, "By the way, I, I don't like drugs. I don't like alcohol. I don't like any of that shit." I really just want someone who's straight. And he went, I fucking hate drugs and alcohol. I went, you're my guy. You are my guy. I go, are you, are you for, just telling me that because you want to make me happy or you really don't like them? And he goes, I not only don't like them, I've never done them. See, I was, ref- I, I came from it. So I had already been a drug addict and I had walked away from it. Um, and I could smell an, an addict a mile away. D did not come off like someone who'd ever been high. In fact, D, the first time D ever got high, the first time he ever drank alcohol in my presence was at his wedding, which was in 1981. So we'd already been together six years. I'd never see him touch anything at that point. And, and when Mendoza joined, I said to Mark, you know, I said, by the way, you know, we're straight. He goes, I fucking hate drugs now. <laughs> You're my guy. You know, who joins a band that hates drugs and alcohol, right? Try to find band members in this business who hate drugs and alcohol. Try to find a crew that hates drugs and alcohol. I mean, you may as well go to a fucking Jehovah Witness retreat to recruit people. You know, this was the antithesis of what you expect. So that was the hard part. You know, and then we would hire these drummers. And I'd go, by the way, the band's straight. Uh, what do you mean? Well, we, you mean like you guys just don't get really fucked up? I said, no, not we don't get really fucked up. We don't get fucked up at all. What do you mean? I said, we don't get fucked up at all. No drugs, no alcohol. What the fuck are you, what kind of band is this? I said, well, it's a hardworking band. I said, you know, so, okay, so then, so here's here's what you got. You got two different kinds of guys. You have a guy who'll lie to you and tell you he doesn't to get into the band, and then we'll do it and and we'll disappoint you. Or you'll have the guy who'll tell you, I'm sorry, man. I'm in this business because I want to party as well. And you go, thank you for your service. <laughs> and that's the end of the rehearsal. You know, that's the end of it. So we had, I appreciated those guys that were honest. Dee and I talk about this all the time. There were some drummers that said, I really prefer to get high. I mean, not like Jehovah Witness thing. Like, you know, they want to get fucked up and they don't know what the boundaries are going to be. And uh, I said to them, you can't do our schedule and be high. It ain't going to work. Our schedule's too too fucked up to get high on. You can't work four, five, six days a week and have either one day or no day off and the day off you have rehearsals. You just can't function when you are playing the club circuit at the level we're playing the club circuit for 10 years. It's a bitch of a schedule. You know, it's a bitch when you're straight. I don't even, I, you know, what is that old joke that, that Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra say about, he goes, I pity people that don't drink because when they get up in the morning, it's, that's the best they're going to feel all day. Right. You know, there's that funny line, right? Yeah. It's a funny line. But I woke up every day straight, you know, which means I woke up every day ready to go to work. And, uh, you know, you can't do that when you get high all the time. So anyway, so D comes in and uh, to, to answer your question, he answered the right questions and, and he was great. How you guys both have such strong personalities. 
you know, I mean, you, you, I, I can tell you're very passionate and Dee's very passionate. How often did you guys clash or did you just sit there and say, you know what, we respect each other, we're going to make this happen? I mean, did, did you guys clash at all? Yeah, I think Dee says it in his book. I talk about it in my book. You know, I said things to him which he took really the wrong way and then he kind of held it against me for years and years and years and, and which was stupid because I've also recognized when he was great pretty much early. I mean, his originals were not great in the beginning, but my originals weren't great. I didn't, I wasn't trying to rewrite the, the rule book about originals. You know, I don't hear things the way Dee hears them. He heard them in a very medley way, and I didn't. I was more like his Lower East Side, New York Jewish, ironic, you know, quasi-intellectual lyrics. And, and D was just one for the throat, you know, suburban blue-collar metal, which was perfect for what the band was going to be. Um, so he claimed that he harbored this grudge he carried for years and years and years. Whatever. Listen, I said to him, if that was your reason why you wrote all the hits and that was the reason why you wrote them, good, good, great, did a great fucking job. And I'd like to thank you and my daughter, I'd like to thank her college education for for these decisions that you made. Um, but for the most part, we were working too hard to hate each other. You know, like we really were working hard. We really had so little time to get into the bullshit of the, and also the band was very successful. And one, another thing about the band is we were so successful. Um, you know how like bands argue about money all the time? We didn't have to argue about money because we're making a ton of it in the bars. If people don't understand why the scene was the way the scene was. It was a very unusual time. And struggling, you know, to make $150 a night three times a month was not our problem. We had plenty of money and we were able to reinvest. That was the smart thing about the band, by the way. That's another reason why the band succeeded. It's because Mark and Eddie and Dee understood that you take all the money you make and you put it back into the business. You know, you get better equipment. You, you buy recording time. You, you upgrade your light show. You, you know, you have health insurance. You have equipment insurance. You know, all this stuff as a bar band. You tell me any bar band that does that. No. And you, you these days, can you find bar bands at work 20 days a month? The answer is no. These days, a band goes, this is how the conversation goes. JJ, I want you to come see my band. I go, oh, how long have you been together? They go, two years. I go, wow, two years. Cool. How many shows have you done? Oh, about 50. I said, you've done 50 shows in two years. Yeah. I said, well, I'll tell you what. When you get to your 500th show, call me. I'll come see your band. 500 shows? That'll never happen. I said, well, probably me coming to see your band will never fucking happen either. <laughs> so, all right. So why do I say that? Because when we were working six nights a week, five shows a night, do the math, 30 shows a week, 120 shows a month. At the end of two years, we're at 1,900 shows. <laughs> 1,900. Now, you learn to get good pretty fast when you play a lot. So there's no excuse for not playing. And so... We were lucky to be in a world that allowed us to do that, which doesn't exist today. Now, do you think because you guys are so focused, you know, you were making great money playing the bars and a lot of people would be happy with that. They'd be like, oh, I'm a musician. You know, I'm playing the bars every night. But you guys had a bigger picture. But did you ever start falling into the trappings of making that good money and just feeling comfortable and resting on your laurels? Never once did we. Um, you know, what Martin Luther King had that thing, keep your eyes on the prize, right? That was a Martin Luther King deal about the civil rights movement. I always say to bands, um, you know, you, you, you run on two levels. You run, uh, you want to be the Beatles, but before you can be the Beatles, you better be better than the band next door because you're never going to be the Beatles if you're not. We always ran on two levels, which was be better than all the bands around us because it's important. You have to be because you have to be making more money than they are and you have to figure out why they're more successful than you. And then you want to be the big thing. So uh, we always operated on two tracks. I never allowed the bands. I ne Let me put you this way. I don't want to sound despotic about it. I never said, we're keep you're not keeping the money. Fuck you. We're going to put it back in the band. Eddie D and Mark totally understood. The whole reason why we were doing this was to become successful. And the only way we become successful is to, improve the show and put the money back into the business. 
And so there were other bands on the circuit that did exactly what you were saying. Bought nice houses, nice cars. They drive up in new cars, have beautiful houses. I stayed in a rent-controlled apartment. These stayed in a, had roommates the whole time. So did I, for that matter. Um, I, I kept my overhead really low because I had a dream. So, yeah, I uh, never fell into the trap of believing the hype or being the big fish in the little pond, for that matter. Now, how did you keep it together mentally when, you know, you guys were going to get signed and then something doesn't happen and you, you have a big show? I mean, how did you keep it together and focus? Because it's it seems like you guys got pounded over the head a few times with just some shit luck. Yeah, that's that's the that's the the million dollar question. Um, we were turned down more times in a bedsheet in a whorehouse, and have come back more times than Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers, and that's true uh, because we processed the rejection. Um, I get to it in my book, which is basically how to get over rejection, is how to process defeat as a company. Um, I didn't realize we were doing it at the time we were doing it, but it became a pattern of our ability to keep coming back over and over and over and over and over again, which I discuss in the book. Um, uh, there are four stages of, of grief, or four stages of adaptability following a major setback. One is you got to mourn what happened. You really have to like mourn it. You have to like get, you have to like feel it and you have to understand it. Then, then you have to reflect on it. Um, and then you have to retool and then you have to reapply the retooling. And that process happened every time. So we would get turned down. It would be painful. I mean, it would really be painful, you know. And then you deal with that for a couple of days and you sit down and you really think about why it happened. You analyze it. And, you know, a lot of bands, when they're told they suck, they refuse to believe it because, you know, they're the greatest. Like, what band says we suck? <laughs> you could say a band sucks, but no band goes, we suck. You know, no one goes, of course we suck. Well, just because someone says you suck doesn't mean you don't suck, okay? So if they said we sucked, I thought about it. Hmm. Maybe they're partially right. You know, so then you have, then you reflect on the, on, on the criticism and you take from it the, the best way you can, staying true to yourself, but maybe kind of going, yeah, they have a point here, I have a point there, okay. And then you, re, you retool your show, your songs, your arrangements, your approach, whatever. And then you reapply it to your circumstances. And that um, cycle happened over and over and over and over again. But I didn't know it was a cycle. And I didn't know I was doing it until years later when I looked back and said, how did we keep coming back after we kept getting rejected you know what was it that kept us coming back and that was the that was it until you know until the whole thing exploded in, in 88 and then the nuclear option i then i talk about the nuclear option and the nuclear option is that you have to destroy everything to start over and, and i destroyed everything <laughs> in your success i want to ask you this MTV, you know, I try, I always explain to people how MTV was so huge. And it's funny because a long time ago, Mark Metcalf was on my show, who was in your videos. And he said he just showed up. And he didn't know what to expect. I don't know if there was some timing. And he said it worked out. And he said he had a, a fucking blast. But try to explain to people what MTV did for your career. And those videos, I mean, you think about it. I was at my buddy's house a few weeks ago. And we were hanging out, we were having a few drinks, and I said, let's watch some videos. I said, put on a put on a Twisted Sister video. And and you watch them, and they're great. I mean, how much did they, you guys were had a big following already, but how much did they do to just blow you through the roof? Well, through everybody through the roof. I mean, through Quiet Riot through the roof, it threw Michael Jackson through the roof, it threw Motley Crue through the roof, it threw us. And all those English bands like Flock of Pigeons or whatever the fuck their name is, a flock of you know, Flock of Seagulls and Spandau Ballet and and Human League and and uh, Duran Duran. I mean, it was an equal opportunity um, magnifier for all of these bands. It was huge. Um, it's funny because Kiss was such a visual band and they missed out on the heyday 
You know what I'm saying? It's interesting that Kiss, uh, but probably for their benefit, they didn't rise and fall with MTV. You know, Kiss already had exploded, and then kind of during that period, kind of quieted down. And then after things kind of quieted down, they kind of came back. So I think Kiss benefited by not being sunk by the by the albatross of of MTV. MTV can create you and can destroy you at the same time. So it magnified us and also locked in an image of what the band was. And um, that image wasn't particularly kind to the band because, you know, the image was that D looked like Sarah Jessica Parker dipped in a vat of acid, you know, and that, and that we were kind of like locked into this fucking image, like this super cartoony buffoony image. And the band wasn't that the band was a hard bitten bar band, a hard bitten rock and roll band, like Mitch Ryder in the Detroit. We like, I don't even say they were an eighties band. We were a seventies bar band really with with 70s bar band ethic you know if you're a fan of rock and roll animal by lou reed which is one of the greatest live albums in the world and you listen to that band you listen to those musicians that's how we prided ourselves on being great musicians and playing great live rock and roll and all the rest of it was a show and unfortunately we got locked into um, that image a little bit too much and and if it wasn't for the fact that the band came back in 2003 and enjoyed an enormous resurgence in popularity after makeup uh that would have been the lasting legacy so i'm really glad that it wasn't the lasting legacy but certainly uh you could ask that question to molly crew and you could ask that question to rat and you can ask that question to choir riot and a thousand other artists both metal and pop and they'll tell you the same thing mtv created you know mtv was like a sugar high it was like a cocaine high is really what it was a temporary massive jolt of, 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 of caffeine. Now, how important, you know, when you guys started playing stadiums and the huge crowds, how important was it to you that you had cut your teeth and been such showmen? You know, you always say you're, you're tight. You know, bands, like some bands, all of a sudden they have a hit, and it's, I used to do stand-up comedy, and a guy would get seven minutes on TV, and he'd come and headline, and you'd just get off ten nights on the road and, like, Ohio to West Virginia, and I came from the Philadelphia area, and you go on stage in your hometown, and you just blow the guy off the off the stage because you were out in the road. This is your hometown. This guy didn't really have it. He was only doing comedy for a year and a half. He got, you know, a spot. So people went, oh, well, people would recognize him. How, you know, and it made such a difference to be tight and off the road. How tight were you guys when you think about it? When you started playing the huge arenas, I mean, you must have been felt invincible because you just did it so many times and you went from bars to bigger places to bigger places to bigger places. Well, first of all, let's say to begin with, most people say, man, if I could only play in front of 5,000 people, right, that would be great. Twisted did that on a regular basis in the bars. The bars were gigantic. So we learned how to play in front of 5,000 people early on and that was no longer a particularly big deal to us it was like a standard yeah five how many people there tonight 3,000 okay 4,000 fine 5,000 fine you know no big deal we do it all the time every night um, when we finally played in front of 22,000 at an outdoor show that was impressive you know but I was already prepared for it we already knew the shtick you know we already knew how to handle ourselves for 22,000 then you start getting to the 40,000 range and um I remember saying to Lemmy once, I said, how do you do it? You know, how, do, how do you play to 40,000? And the advice he gave me, which, um, I, which I use to this day, which is he goes, you know, let me tell you how you do it. He said, um, and he's right. He says, you, you can't play to the people in the back. Like if you play 100,000, you know, like there's a crowd of 100,000 people. The guy in the back, he's not there to see you. He's there just to say he was there and, and to have a picnic blanket with his friend to get drunk and watch little screens a half a mile away and say that he was there. That's all that person's doing back there. He's getting, he or she is getting fucking wasted on a blanket with friends and having a hell of a good time. Could give a shit. And the people directly in front of you, when you're playing hundred thousand people, you know, the people in the first like 20 feet of you, they're so happy that they're not being crushed to death 
that and they're close to the they're close to you so they love it so you can't worry about them either because everybody's great to those people right because they're in the front oh fuck you man it's great. so you can't worry about the people in the back can't worry about the people in the front you kind of pick out this area around where the sound console or console is which is about uh 50 to 100 yards out and you look at that and don't forget where the sound monitor board is that's the best sound because the guy's mixing for him right there so you kind of look at that swath, and if, if that swath is freaking out, then you've got, you've got your night. So you're a stand-up comic. You've done a million dates. You know how to read an audience. You know how to read a club. You just got the vibe. You walk on stage. You've done it a thousand times. You know, you do a quick check, okay? I, I, you can tell by the first line you say how the night's going to go, good night, whatever. You know, I always say there's four stages to a band's night. There's, and here's the four stages. You suck and the audience sucks. That's when you want to kill yourself, okay? Um, you suck and the audience is great, and you thank fucking God you got away with murder because by all means, you should not have gone over at all, but you fucking fooled them on the back of your professional abilities. You're great and the audience sucks. That's where you really question yourself and go, what the fuck? I just did the greatest show in my life and no one fucking cared. Or... You're great and the audience is great. So if, you're, if your goal is to be great and for the audience to be great, that's your goal. You want that condition. I would say Twisted Sisters' consistency level for we're great and the audience is great um, is 99.9%. Okay? Um, getting there to learn how to do that was, you know, years and years and years and years and years. There were nights that I thought we were great, and the audience was tough. And there was nights that we sucked, and I just thought we were great. I, we used to go backstage and go, what the fuck? I mean, <laughs> God, did we? Oof, man. Like, yeah. And then there's nights where everybody sucks. And that's those nights. Those are the nights when that really that really try men's souls, you know, when you suck and the audience sucks. Because, you know, you can beat yourself. I used to, I used to come home from gigs. I can tell you, really, true story. I would come back to Manhattan from Long Island or jersey whatever and i would be crushed over the fact that we sucked that night and the audience sucked and i really question why i'm even doing it and i would go for a walk in the park the early the next day before i have to take a shower and go to the next gig and i have a have a um, imaginary talk with my dead mother this is true i'm being i haven't actually said this in the other no one really kind of got me to talk like this. So I had this conversation with my mom who died. Like, mom, why, why, <laughs> why did it suck so bad? Like, why did you let me suck so bad last night? Why? And you know, it's I'm not a religious person, and I, I don't know what to say about this except that I would go for these. I'd have these imaginary conversations with my mom about why it sucked, and just try to figure it out. And then I would go to the club that night to, you know, doing sound check. And I would try to make sure that whatever we did that night, we were going to not fuck up the way we fucked up the night before. So the key is if you fuck up, don't repeat it, find new ways to fuck up. I'm sure you understand that, you know, if a joke doesn't work, you know, figures another one out, but don't use the same. If, if, if something's not working, it's not working for whatever reason. So you have to refine your act because we had thousands of shows under our belt. We refined our act. So the band band hasn't played in four years i guarantee you that if we were offered a gig to headline in front of 100,000 people this summer uh we'd rehearse for about two hours and go on stage and kill it because that's just how we're built yeah because you have been you had such you've been on stage so much it's second nature to you now you said at one point what was it 88 when you ripped everything down you had to blow everything up what why I mean, what made you sit there? Because most people will hold on to it. We see it in sports where a guy should have retired. And there's only people that, you know, like a Tom Brady wins a Super Bowl at that age. But, you know, most people will hold on to the glory. What made you sit there and go, it's time to just blow this shit up? Well, um, Love is for Suckers didn't do well at all. D wanted to leave. Um, I looked at the landscape and what it was going to take to have to rebuild. My marriage was falling apart. Um, and Dee and I were being sued for millions of dollars in a merchandise disagreement we had with our merch company. And they came after me and Dee. Not anybody else, but came after me and Dee. So I, was, I had to file for bankruptcy. And 
D had to file for bankruptcy. We did it separately because we weren't talking at the time. So I had to file for bankruptcy. I had to go through a divorce. I said to myself, well, I'm filing for bankruptcy. I'm going through a divorce. This is all too much. How can I, I don't have the energy to try to put a band back together again, try to find an answer. I don't have an answer. So I'm going to get out of the business completely. So I basically, you know, there's two ways you can handle um, uh, trauma in your life. There's proactive and there's reactive. Reactive is when you have no control over what's going on. And, it, and it, like all of a sudden, one day you find out somebody was killed in a car crash. You know, that's reactive trauma. But proactive trauma is when you can kind of, it's kind of like the difference between offense and defense in football. You know what they say? They say the offense has a split second more knowledge than the defense. Defense has reactive. Offense is proactive, which means they know a split second before you do what's going to happen. So they have the edge because they've got the ball. So as long as you can have the edge by having the ball, you can go through proactive trauma. I went through proactive trauma and, um, and uh, decided I was going to take the nuclear option, which is blow the whole fucking thing up because there was no future in it. I deduced there was no future. And I'm not going to go back backwards. I'm not going back in the bars, you know, not after headlining and having multi-platinum records. You know, all this shit behind me. I've got 37 of them and they're stored in rooms. And shit. I'm not going back. Fuck that. I have no desire to play in, in a bar. It's not going to happen. Um, so uh, I left the business completely and, and never expected, ever expected to go back into the business. How do you I do just, that? I got, How do you leave? I know you don't want to move back, but it was your whole life. I mean, that's like sitting there. Almost, I know people will, will eat hamburgers out of life and become a vegetarian. And you go, how the hell did you do that? Like, how did you sit there and say, I mean, it's it was it's in your blood, man. I mean, how did you just? Sit no, there no, and no, 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 no. Remember, I told you my my wife says I have a very cutthroat way of dealing with shit. Like, you know, you just cut bait and move on. That's exactly what I did. I just said. To the best of my ability, to the best of my ability to perceive the reality, it's done. And it's over. And that was it. And I filed for bankruptcy. I went down to bankruptcy court. And uh, all I had was the name Twisted Sister. And I had an amazing conversation with the judge. He allowed me to keep the trademark in one of the more, I get into this in the book. It's one of the more extraordinary conversations. The book will go into it. But the bottom line is I walked out of bankruptcy court in 1989 with nothing more than two guitars and uh, a subway token. And that was all I had left. And uh, uh, now let me explain this to you. Um, I knew exactly why I was in bankruptcy court. Okay. It wasn't like what happened. So there's three kinds of people on the planet. There's the people who make it happen. The people who watch it happen and the people who go, what happened? And I always swore I'd never be one of those people that said what happened i'm either going to make it happen or i'm going to watch it happen well i made this happen and i watched it happen so i knew what was going down and i, and I already made preparations already i'd lost all my credit cards everything was gone i had no money and i was getting divorced and um i said let me solve the divorce things first let me get that off the plate then i'll get a job so i'll get some stability let me get that off the plate and then once I either remarry or figure out a new girlfriend or whatever, and I have a job, I have some money coming in, then I'll kind of decide what to do. But I can't do that. I can't put a band together when I have no money. And I can't put a band together when uh, when I'm broken, depressed over a failed marriage. So I, I needed to heal. So I, I healed. And then, you know what? A year goes by, and I hadn't played guitar in that year. And I went, yeah, that's okay. I don't really miss it. And two years goes by. Yeah, I don't miss it. And three years goes by, and I remarry, and my wife has a baby, and she's making great money. And I said, I'll be the caretaker. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the kid. So I became, you know, the nanny. And I was fine with that. I was totally fine with it. And when my daughter turned four or five, two things happened. One was I got a job selling stereo systems. Manhattan. He's a st- stereo salesman. And the other one was this band called Seven Dust asked me to manage them. And I had known the guys for years in other bands in, in, uh, in Atlanta and worked with them trying to get them record deals and they all fell apart. But I had these two things going on. But now I'm stable. I got a job. I'm married. Everything is kind of cool. I'm making money as a stereo salesman. I don't have anything to think about at night. I'm not running the company. So I had to make a decision. You know, do, do I... Um, do I manage this band? Seven does. 
So I took a gamble. And I said, I'll match you if I can produce you. And they went, uh, yeah. So uh, I got him a record deal. And me and Mendoza produced the album. And the album was a gigantic success. And then I started managing the band. And the band started making a lot of money. As a manager, I was making way more money than I ever did with Twisted. So here I am selling stereo equipment on the east side <laughs> and managing Seven Dust from the basement in between selling stereos at this very high-end audio store. And then the owner of the store says, you know, you're spending so much time on the phone downstairs, there's, it's pointless working here. And I said, you know, I don't really need to work here. I'm making way too much money managing Seven Dust. And, and so Seven Dust I made them into an extremely successful act and was extremely successful as their manager. You know, and then by the time Seven Dust and I parted ways, uh, then the next issue comes up. My second wife left me for somebody, and I was physically ill, and I needed a heart uh, operation. And so I was faced with yet another crisis, you know, which is second divorce, and now what am I going to do for money? And that all coincided with 9-11 happening, and then Twisted Reforming doing a benefit for the widows and orphans of the New York City Police and Fire Department, at which point we found out, you know, the band hadn't spoken for 12 years, so we reunited. And, uh, and Dee and I reunited in 1996. I go into that in the book. Um, that was a very emotional conversation. We reunited. And um, what happened was the band came back in ways that no one ever could have anticipated. Huge. I mean, bigger than ever. So uh, I've been lucky, but I've taken real heavy hits, you know, like super heavy. And, and the hits keep coming, by the way. I had two heart operations. One failed and almost killed me. The second one succeeded. I had prostate cancer three years ago. You know, um, I don't know if you never, you never don't have cancer. You may be in remission. But I think once anyone has cancer, you probably have think, you think about it for the rest of your life. So today I don't have prostate cancer. It doesn't mean any kind of it's not going to come back or something else isn't going to kill me. You know, I had a friend die two days ago of ALS. He was fine a year and a half ago, got ALS and died less than a year. Another business associate of mine today found out has liver cancer. I mean, you know, the irony of life, if you live long enough, you lose a lot in the early days when all your friends are dumb fucking idiots and they're either ODing or they get killed by death by misadventure, wrong place, wrong time. Or then there's peace and quiet on the death front for like 40 years. <laughs> you start dying of cancer and on the flip side. So, well, the health, yeah, the health thing side. is the health thing is screwed up because I uh, I had a uh, cardiac ablation a few years ago. I've been regular heartbeat. So, so did I. Okay, and then I had a for AFib. Then I went for a flutter. Well, two weeks ago, I go into my cardiologist, my physiologist, uh, electrophysiologist, and they say, you know, we set up an ablation for the end of June. Well, then I go back in the next week to see my cardiologist, and for some reason, my heart went out of whack. I had a flutter, so I had to get cardioverted, and then they put me on some medication, and I still think, since that happened, even though they took care of it, I just get an ablation, I still always look at my fucking Fitbit and go, what's my heart rate? What's my heart rate? And you're right, because it sticks with you. Well, do you, do you, take, you don't take amniodarone, do you? I can't, because when, I, when they gave me that, it screwed up my liver. So right now, yeah, I'm, I'm on a you... uh, solid... Soliton until I get the uh, ablation at the end of June, and then they're going to take me off it in like. So, two weeks. so you've had ablation once or not had ablation? I had an ablation for AFib, and I had an ablation for a flutter. And when now did I'm you getting, have the ablation for AFib? How many years ago? I had it uh, two two and a half years ago, and so now I'm okay. going in to get a tune up. Basically, they always right. say sixty five percent of the time it usually doesn't. They don't pay. get all of it, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so they failed the first time, and. Um, and what happened was when they took the catheters out, they tore my heart muscle and 400 cc's of blood entered my chest and collapsed my lung and put me in the ICU. Uh, pretty fucked up. Um, two years after that, I had it done again by Cleveland Clinic because Cleveland Clinic is one of the best heart hospitals in the world. And the guy who did it had done over 2,500 of them and, and treated me like, like it was a car wash. Like as, it wasn't like a boogeyman thing. Like this is what we do. This is what we fucking do, and you're never going to come back here again, okay? I can tell you, this is what he said to me. He goes, I know what the fuck the other guy did, but I will tell you that you will never see me fucking again. And that was 15 years ago. 
Well, good. Right. Then that, that gives me, because I get at the end of the June. Um, before we wrap up, I want to talk about your podcast. What made you start a podcast? And you're getting some great guests. And is it is it easier for you to get guests because people know who you are? Like, you know, Michael Imperioli, was he a Twisted Sister fan? I mean, how does that happen? I know a lot of people, number one. I'm in New York City, so I know a lot of people. And if I don't know people directly, I know people who know people. So um, uh, my ability to talk is notorious. And, um, and my daughter said that if I can make money talking, I'll be the richest person on earth, which is you know just a funny line from her standpoint. But I love asking questions. So uh, Podcast One, which is my producer, uh, Podcast One was bought by Live by Live, which is the largest, most that's the most successful online live concert promoting company in the world and they bought podcast one and the owner of podcast one's right hand person is one of my best friends in fact it's one of my wife's best friends so she said we now own a podcasting company and i think john you should do it and i said that's a great idea i have no idea how to even begin so i did my research and and they put a production team around me and i started doing it and i've done i've had like this week um, Doc McGee is on this week, you right. know, and I had Shep last week. Um, coming tomorrow, I've got Jonathan. T- Are we live? Like, when does this go on? Is this live? No, this is uh, be about two weeks. Two weeks, right? So I'm running way behind that. I'm running months behind because I have so many people ganged up right now. And uh, so I have Jonathan Taplin on, who's the author for uh, Move Fast and Break Things, who has a new book out called uh, The Magic The Magic Years and. Uh, basically he started out by being the band and Dylan's tour manager and wound up producing the last waltz, which is one of my favorite all time movies and, and, and was produced George Harrison's Bangladesh concert. He's five years older than me. So all the shows that I went to as a kid, he basically produced those shows that I went to. So to read his book is, is like reading my life story, except from a guy five years older. If I was five years older, I would have been doing what he did. He did it. I was simply the, kid who went to these shows right so I'm, how, how old are you 57 okay so i'm 68 so yeah i was 15 when sergeant pepper came out that was a great age but this guy was five years older than me so he was in newport when dylan went electric in fact the day dylan went electric he was got his first gig in the music industry with with dylan and the band and you know his book is extraordinary plus he's a he's a professor and he's a, he's a great writer and he, he writes he's had best-selling business books and he wrote this incredible book so he was going to be back back ordered, you know. Like I did, I did him for um, an hour, an hour and a half, and then I thought, well, his book is out now, so I want to, you know, it's current, so I want to get him on. So he's going to be on starting tomorrow. He's he's great, but I love these guys, you know. I love Don McLean. I mean, Don McLean was fucking funny as hell. I don't think Don McLean had a clue as to who I was or what I knew. He, he just he, knew I was a heavy metal guy. You know, he started he, know. He, he started eating peanuts. <laughs> I was interviewing him. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, did you ever interview Don McLean? I did. He started I mean, eating peanuts. I yeah, interviewed him a few I mean, months ago. So so he's a pretty funny guy, you know. And I said to him, what was the first show you went to see? He said, the Weavers of Carnegie Hall. I said, that was my first show. He freaked out. I said, I'm a lefty from Manhattan. You know, I, you know, I come from this left-wing, crazy, super, you know, family in Manhattan. And, and we grew up on the Weavers. And that changed everything with Don McLean. Like the minute he realized that we, you know, he's older than me, but we had a lot in common. And then he got really funny. And I said to him, Don, this is my favorite question. I said, Don, I said, 71, you had the biggest single of the year, except that was also the year that Paul Simon's greatest album came out. James Taylor's greatest album came out. Fucking Cat Stevens' greatest album came out. Um, uh, The Who's greatest album came out. Rod Stewart's Heavy Picture Tell the Story comes out. Carol King's Tapestry comes out. How the hell did you feel? And he goes, I'm better than all of them. And I said, what? He goes, I sing better and I got better songs. <laughs> it was like, okay. What I loved about it, that's the kind of balls you have to have. Exactly. You know what I mean? What I love about it is, think about what I just said. I'm writing an article for Goldmines. I write for various magazines. Goldmine, I write a Beatle uh, column for Goldmine, an audio column for for um, uh, a magazine called Copper, and I have an article in the new Stereophile. Um, I get to do all these things. The bottom line to your question is, I love 
these things that I'm doing. I love being busy. I love talking to people. I learn things from them. I like sharing experiences. I mean, look, that's what you do, right? And you've been doing this for a long time. Exactly. So. Man, I want to thank you for coming on. This is great. You know, I, I sit there. I always do my research. I watched the documentary yesterday, and I really liked it. And I was I was expecting you though because I I was following you on Twitter I saw some things I was hoping you wear the gray beanie because I always wear this hat you weren't you know right. a lot of those other videos you got the gray beanie on yeah yeah well I had a, I had a hairpiece for years and COVID fucking stopped it and I was you know I could turn it into a comedy routine I really could turn it into a comedy routine like the worst fucking nightmare could happen to someone who wears a hairpiece is that the world stops turning. And you can't get to it. You know, it's like, oh, my fucking God. And I just said, fuck it. I don't care anymore. Like, I'm not on stage. And if I was, it wouldn't matter. Because heavy metal guys, half of them have no fucking hair left anyways. Exactly. I want to thank you. People, uh, go go, go to his website, JJFrench, J-A-Y-J-A-Y, French.com. Follow him on Twitter at JJFrench. And when you follow him on Twitter, you can see there's links to his podcast. He has a little video clip. It's a great show. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.